We the members of the secret order of alchemical actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Hi, my name is Rob C. Thompson, joining you with yet another special episode. Yeah, we're getting back on the interview bandwagon. I want to thank uh, my friend and uh, fellow alchemical actor, Luke Kinnaman. Luke, can you say hi to the good folks out there? Hello. Uh, Luke, I've decided is officially our Producia Discordia, because he has been producing now uh, quite a few of our episodes, doing some editing. He's producing this new uh, interview series, and he's our uh, Discord manager. What, what Moderator, what are you... <laughs> No, you're right. Moderator. Mod- easiest, yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm not nerdy enough for the internet sometimes, Luke. That's uh, okay. I aspire to be. Um, so today, uh, what Luke has managed to arrange for us is a very exciting conversation uh, with two folks from a podcast that I very much enjoy, Black Mass Appeal. Uh, and and uh, Luke, could you tell us a little bit about these folks uh, what, as far as what... Uh, what they represent here is what is the black mass <laughs> so black mass appeal they are in a weird way about as far as possible as you could get from us if you're thinking just geographically or they're on the west <laughs> that's coast. true they're on the other coast <laughs> <laughs> but they are kind of a unique take at your modern satanist but i don't think i could do it nearly as much justification as they could so i'm gonna hand it back to you yeah so without further ado let's bring him on in uh we've got daniel walker who is a writer uh and we have simone lasher who is a media person a person of uh, television film and radio and also a a former jeopardy contestant and uh, these two are part of the uh now correct me again if i'm wrong here you two it's a Bay Area Satanism? Satanic Bay Area. I had it backwards. <laughs> Satanic hey, Bay Area. You got all the right words in there. Sometimes the word order doesn't matter that much. <laughs> uh, let me just sing your praises for a minute. When I listen to Black Mass Appeal, it, it's it's sort of like, to me, it's like the potlunk after after like satanic church service you're like you're hanging around with people talking about the big questions talking about the little things the vibe is laid back uh but but you're getting the satanic perspective uh, i think inside and out you guys do an excellent job of making people feel like they're hanging out with you uh, so thank you for the work you do oh thank you for listening and thank you for having us on absolutely uh so we want to talk about things Things Satanism today uh, that intersect with some of the topics we cover on Occult Confessions. Uh, I'm particularly interested in your take on things like, uh, for example, the modern conspiracy scene as it intersects with, let's just say Satan. Uh, but but let's wind our way into that slowly. Uh, so, oh, oh, have I got a take for you? Then <laughs> <laughs> I know, Daniel, you've been doing work on on conspiracy. Yes, on on your podcast. I'm not sure if work is the right word for it, but yes, that is one of the fields that I personally touch on on the show uh, more often than maybe I should. This is exciting. This is exciting stuff. All right, so let's let's start with just some basic stuff. Uh, you know, we've got listeners out there who are Satanists. We've got listeners out there who are fairly new to hearing about Satanism. So who is Satan from a Satanist perspective? Everybody's got their take on this, but what is the Satanist perspective on Satan? Simone, you want to take this or should I? Well, I mean, I can just sort of uh, uh, get us kicked off here. So the thing about Satanism and the thing about Satan is that, you know, we like to say that there are as many Satans as there are Satanists. 
uh, there's the Satan in the Bible. There's the Satan in Paradise Lost. There's the Satan, you know, in other romantic works. There's the Satan in Anatole France's uh, Revolt of the Angels. There's also the Satans that predate the b- biblical Satan, the the influences that later became Satan, like Pan or, or um, you know, other other deities. And so um, for most Satanists, and again, you know, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush because every Satanist is different. There are different Satanic sects, which I don't think that a lot of people realize they're different, quote unquote, denominations of Satanism. But generally, generally, uh, most Satanists are atheists and they use uh, the literary Satan as kind of a representation of the belief set. So uh, we look at Satan, who was the first rebel. We look at Satan as the one who uh, brought knowledge to humanity. We look at Satan as um, a representation of those who have been, you know, cast out by the mainstream. So that's kind of the the opening of of diving into who is Satan, because that's that's a pretty big question. So talk a little bit about maybe about where you guys are in the denominations of Satanism. You know, on the show, we talk about Anton LaVey. We talk about the Temple of Set, you know, those early days and the splintering of the movement into various factions. How has Satanism evolved since then? And, and where are you guys at in the, uh, the rainbow? Well, for example, I'm a member of a, of a religion called the Satanic Temple, which many of your listeners may have heard of, although I should be at pains to mention that I am not a spokesperson for them, and that although we do have a lot of Temple members in our Black Mass Appeal audience, and often they are our guests on the show, it is not a TST-specific program. I say that both because it is accurate to say that, but also because they don't like people using their name around too freely. They get very sensitive about that, and you can... Uh, so, so you're always at pains to make it clear that, uh, you know... Uh, who you are and are not speaking on behalf of. Um, and, you know, uh, the Satanic Temple is a org that's only been around for the last uh, eight or nine years, depending on on how you count it. So a relatively recent uh, manifestation. At Satanic Bay Area, we are, I guess you could use the word non-denominational. We are not a religion. We are not a church. We are, as Simone sometimes likes to put it, um, we would be more equivalent to the Bible study group that you go to with people from maybe some other churches. You know, we are a group of different but like-minded Satanists. You can be a member of any other Satanic organization that you want and still work with us, as long as you get along with all of us fairly well, and as long as you share what our specific community goals are. And so we get a lot of Satanists from groups like Satanic Temple. We get some, although not as many Satanists from older groups like the Church of Satan, and also from some other more obscure Satanic uh, uh, sects that maybe a lot of folks have never heard of. And then oftentimes, especially more more and more uh, the last few years, we get people who are sort of, you might call independent unchurched Satanists, people who do not subscribe to any particular Satanic doctrine, but are very attracted to the concept and who maybe identify with Satanists exclusively through their solo solo practice or through their own study and philosophy or even just through the activities they do with us uh, locally. And that is something you are seeing more often, I think, 
uh, around organizations like ours, and then also other independent sort of non-denominational Satanist groups uh, across the U.S. and, and indeed around the world. I Nobody does a lot of demographic or um, anthropological study about Satanists, so it's very, very hard to say what trends are, but I would not be surprised to find that, that has become more common really just in the last five years or so. So uh, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm interested, you know, this is occult confessions after all. Temple of Set, you know, went in a direction that was more occulty. Do you intersect with Satanists who have an interest in occultism and magic? We definitely do. And um, to quickly backtrack to a little bit of what Daniel was saying, I am not a member of the Satanic Temple. I consider myself an independent Satanist and focus my Satanist work on our podcast and on the the work we do with Satanic Bay Area. And so um, the you know Satanic Bay Area, like like Daniel said, we uh, are a collection of Satanists. Um, we don't have one overarching dogma or doctrine that you have to follow. And so uh, therefore, we do have people who are theistic Satanists or people who practice magic or witchcraft, whatever. Um, the group operates as an atheistic group. So our group activities are going to be atheistic. You know, we're not going to have, we're going to have rituals, but we're not summoning anything, you know? Um, however, we don't police what our members do at home. So if you want to work a magic on your own time, then completely fine. Um, but it's not something that, uh, like I said, that the group practices together. So uh, piggybacking off of what Simone just said, two things. One, yes, Satanic Bay Area is specifically a group that was founded by and for atheistic Satan. At the same time, for example, we're friends with some local groups who uh, practice what who have a more theistic Satanic practice. And I do know that there are people who are members of both of those circles. And so uh, presumably there are some folks who have some more occult or esoteric beliefs. Uh, but, you know, we, we're not really in the business of policing uh pleasing people's thoughts and feelings. And so, uh, you know, like I said, as long as everybody is pretty much on the same page and gets along pretty well, we don't necessarily care that much what you believe in. Uh, otherwise, I guess it is possible for the mixing of those worldviews to create conflict, but so far it never has. So as long as that continues to be the case, uh, that continues to be our, our outlook, I guess maybe a, and then the second point, I guess maybe what people really want to know and ask a question like that is what are our values? What does Satanism mean? Because Satanism can mean so many different things and it can actually be very, very unhelpful to define Satanism because Satanism is such a broad term that the definition leaves you with almost no answer. So I would say some of the most common things that our members believe and associate with words like Satan and Satanism are things like uh, humanism, uh, uh, skepticism, reason, feminism, queer rights, uh, romanticism, it, that's in the in the literary and artistic sense of that word going back to the 18th and the 19th century. Um and all of those and all of those values that emphasize uh, human well-being and materialism and kind of this worldliness. Those are the things that I think are most often most attractive to most of the people we hang out with. Yeah, I mean, I can see the Wicca connection there right away with romanticism. Of course, there's going to be some engagement with nature, right, that brings out the Wiccans and the witchcraft folks. So um, just hearing you talk, it sort of makes me think of some religious traditions, spiritualism, for example, where they talk to the dead. Historically, in the 19th century, people would go to their Christian church or whatever they belong to, then they would go to the spiritualist church after. Buddhism has been called the similar sort of practice, although I don't entirely believe it, where you can be a Christian Buddhist or a Jewish Buddhist. 
is that the sense? You know, there are certain traditions that might vibe. You can be a Wiccan Satanist, but maybe can you be a Christian Satanist? We do have someone who identifies as a Christian Satanist. Um, Actually, I think more specifically, they are a Christian Luciferian, if I'm remembering that right, Daniel. And also a pagan. That yes. So yes. So there are are some belief systems that kind of, you know, slot in a little bit more neatly with Satanism. So, you know, paganism, Wicca, witchcraft, um, you know, uh Thelema. But again, we're we're you know, we're not trying to make sure everyone believes the same thing and we're not trying to police what people do at home. So if someone wants to call themselves a pagan Christian Luciferian, we ask them what that means to them. And we, you know, listen and honor that, uh, but it doesn't, you know, necessarily change how our our group works. So if you decide that our group is right for you, then cool, come, come to our coffee hour, come to our events. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we do typically see some, some sects more than others, get a ton, a ton from the atheist community or the, you know, the former Christian community. Um but, but yeah, we, we don't, you know, tend to look at anybody, you know, askance if they, they tell us that they're coming from a particular background or another. And, you know, it's interesting Simone brought up that example because that, uh, that woman, Connie, was one of the earliest, uh, one of our oldest friends, a person who showed up to our very first public event. And so I never really understood what she meant when she said that she was a Satanist, or sometimes she prefers the term Luciferian, uh, and a Christian and a pagan. I didn't really understand how that worked. And you know, that's, that's fair. I don't have to, but then she came on an episode of black mass appeal some years ago when she explained her position. She said, you know, I don't know if Jesus is real. I don't know if he answers my prayers, but I know that saying the prayers helps me reading the Bible helps me. Similarly, the neo-pagan practices that she has and the satanic practices that she has help her when she feels more compelled towards those sides of her faith and her practice. And when she said that, I'm like, okay, I get that. That makes sense to me. Uh, That's radically different from my outlook, but that's fine. Uh, We do have a diversity of opinions and perspectives. I do feel like I should emphasize, though, that, again, most of the Satanists we meet are people who are just Satanist. Most of the people who we meet are mostly atheist, mostly kind of materialist uh, sorts of people. And I emphasize that, Jim, simply because although we have a diverse perspective, I think we also don't necessarily want to dilute uh, other people's perceptions of what we're doing too much if that makes any sense try to try to balance those two ends of things yeah i mean for our show because we talk about so many different traditions we tend to talk about you know everybody's going up the same mountain but they're taking different routes for an occultist i think that tends to be the attitude but i feel like what you're suggesting daniel is that there's a core set of values that would identify somebody as a satanist as opposed to uh you know a member of the oto or something or an atheist maybe let's play with that for a second how do we differentiate between a Satanist and someone who is an atheist but not a Satanist? Well, um, I came from an atheist background myself. I was raised pretty much without religion, you know, lapsed Catholic father, lapsed Protestant mother. Maybe we go to to church for, you know, Easter to help, you know, make grandma happy, but that's about it. Um, and so I, you know, realized that I was an atheist fairly early on. And you know, as I grew older, I kind of began to search for something with more meaning. Because when you say that you're an atheist, all that really tells the other person is the one thing you don't believe in. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Maybe it also means that I'm not into supernaturalism. You know, it 
most likely is the case, but but not always, as I've as I found. Um, so I was looking for something that more positively described my belief set. And um, modern Satanism, at least is the way that we practice it and Satanic Bay Area practices it, um, incorporates a lot of beliefs that one might call, you know, philosophical or spiritual or political. So, you know, the things that, you know, are important to me are, you know, a, a woman's right to choose, uh, her, you know, have autonomy over her own body, uh, the, the rights of the LGBTQ, you know, plus community, uh, that Black Lives Matter, that, you know, climate change is a, a, a pressing issue. Uh, a lot of these things could be described as, you know, just being your typical San Francisco lefty. Uh, but I didn't understand why that couldn't also be my religion. We see a lot of, you know, people who are Christian who have their belief sets, you know, they believe in, you know, uh, not choosing, you know, to, to be quote unquote pro-life. And that's a political view, but they also incorporate that into their religious views. And so uh, I kind of was drawn to Satanism um, because it was an encapsulation of everything that I already believed. I mean, I didn't have to change a thing. I didn't have to do anything I didn't want to do. I didn't have to, you know, worship anything or, or, or change any what would be called political beliefs. It just fit. And so, um, you know, that was a difference for me between being an atheist, which is I just don't believe in God and I'm just kind of floating through life otherwise, and being a Satanist where my beliefs are better encapsulated. Um, I have an aesthetic. I have, you know, a, a uh, story or a myth that I know is a myth because Satan is not real, uh, but that is representational of, of my belief set. And so that's, that's the difference. And that's why it worked for me. To uh, go back to the example that you just used. So the OTO, for example, is a specific religious organization that has uh, a particular infrastructure and a set of beliefs and membership. And uh, if somebody is a member of the OTO, while I imagine they have a very diverse congregation, a lot of different points of view, both about things relevant to Crowley as uh, writings and teachings and also on other issues. Nevertheless, there is kind of a shared core there. You don't necessarily get that with Satanism. If somebody tells you they're a Satanist, uh, you really need to ask a series of follow-up questions to figure out what those values are, because we actually may not share a lot of values or any at all with other people who call themselves Satanists. Uh, let me, let me to, and we'll turn to that topic in a second, something that uh, what Simone was just saying there about, um, you know, what's the difference between a Satanist and an atheist? Uh, uh, again, returning to the example of the the Satanic Temple, which I bring up just because it's it's a very um, useful reference in here. If you look at uh, when, when I first learned about this organization, they have seven tenets that their religious practices are based on. And if you look at the tenets, they use words like compassion, empathy, justice, wisdom, science. Uh, they, they talk about bodily autonomy and human fallibility. And I thought to myself, man, those are, those are really wonderful. Those are very inspiring and easier to relate to and really connect with me. But I wondered, what do they have to do with Satan? Because I had read about Satanism at that point in my life. In fact, I found the topic fascinating, but I didn't find it necessarily appealing as something that I would want to practice. And this seemed radically different. Where were they getting these values out of the word Satanism and the idea of Satan. 
I didn't quite get it at first. And then, you know, I spent some time studying. I went and looked at the uh, sources that they cite as their inspiration. For example, there's a book that Simone has already referenced called The Revolt of the Angels, written by Anatole France in 1913, I believe. We did an episode about this uh, last year. And this is now an obscure book in the U.S., but at the time of his life, France was one of the most famous writers in Europe, I gather, and is still sometimes studied in uh French public schools, for example. And The Revolt of the Angels is, in many ways, a, a work of parody. It's about these fallen angels living on Earth who are plotting a revolution against heaven, but it's often in this very comical and ineffectual way that lampoons French politics in the early 20th century. Um, but there is a segment in there where you hear the story of Satan's re- revolution against God, about that, about that, the war in heaven, from the perspective of one of the angels who fought with Satan, and also of the history of the world after that, of what happened after they failed and were cast out of what they've been doing there. And there's these really wonderful, beautiful, poetic passages talking about Satan as this character who is warm and strong and giving and compassionate and so sensitive and vulnerable and carries around so much pain about his failings, but is still able to struggle on and create great things and try to understand other people. And Satan himself has a wonderful quote at the end of the book where he talks about uh, how everything that he has suffered through in life has made him so much better as a person. And he says, I love hell that forged my genius. I love the earth where I've done good. If it is possible to do good. And I read that and I, I swoon a little bit and all of a sudden I got it. Yes, I understand. This is what people are. This is what these people are talking about when they think about Satan. this and similar works like they, that they cite. And you look at something like their seven tenets. They say, this is how they interpret this story of Satan. Other people may interpret the story of Satan radically different ways. They may use other sources and come to radically different conclusions. For example, if you look at, you said you talked about Anton LaVey on this show. Uh, we, when we talk about LaVey's writings on Black Mass Appeal, we often have an unflattering opinion, which annoys some of our listeners, but you know what? That's our, that's our honest <laughs> yeah. reaction. To, that's our honest reaction to him. His concept of Satan is totally different, both from mine and what I just talked about. And frankly, I don't always understand. I don't really understand it at all. I, I don't understand the people who look at his idea of who Satan is and how to interpret that story. And it just seems completely at odds with anything that I would draw from that. But um, that is how you end up with something. If you read the book, The Invention of Satanism from published, I think, 2016, and they talk about, they say, Satanism is not really a religion. Satanism is more of a milieu. And they compare it to the word New Age, which does have a specific meaning. But at the same time, you would expect a, a huge huge difference between two different new age practicers, you know, may identify with that term and have a few things in common, but still have wildly different views and uh, beliefs and personal practices they subscribe to. And the word Satanism is a lot like that. So that was a long answer to a relatively short question, but there you have it. (laughs) It's sort of a school of thought in a way like that. Um, It it makes me think of the chaos magicians uh, who, tend to regard their founding members sort of very similar to the way you just spoke about Anton LaVey, Daniel, that is, they're sort of goofy now. You know, it was neat what they did and all, but in hindsight, a lot of their perspectives are viewed as, as sort of outdated, that, you know, folks have moved on, which I think traditions like chaos magic and Satanism maybe are uniquely suited to take that perspective. Many religions venerate the founder literally, you know, deify the founder of the religion and, and don't take a critical stance. So it seems healthy. To I me. was yeah, wondering I if a relevant you. comparison was maybe, um, you mentioned Wicca already. I know people have some, uh, 
are of two minds about, say, Gerald Gardner, you know, if they are Wiccans or other kinds of neo-pagans, uh, I wonder, but I, I don't really know a lot about it myself. No, that's a, that's a great one, too. I, I think it's a, a trend <laughs> in, in 20th century occultism to, you know, thank the founder <laughs> to some extent for getting it going, but, you know, kindly step out of the way while we do yeah, this better. Yeah, I, I think that for, for Satanists, you know, we're a... a belief set that highly values um, individuality and uh, independence and, you know, pushing back against authority. And so if you're going to position yourself as an authority figure in the satanic community, you have to be ready to be knocked around a bit and questioned and perhaps rejected. And, you know, I, I read the satanic Bible uh, years ago and I thought there were some good things in there, but ultimately it wasn't for me. Uh, there was a lot in there that I found, for lack of a more elegant term, pretty icky. Uh, you know, the idea that might makes right and you should you know, trample over other people to get what you want. I'm like, you know, I really like some of this stuff, but I just kind of don't like this social Darwinist or kind of libertarian attitude. And so I kind of put it away and put the idea of Satanism away for a while until uh, more recent um, uh, writings and, and figures emerged to I, I did connect with more. So yeah, we we have a good laugh at old Tony's expense on the show. Um, but you know, we, we do read his works because if we're going to call ourselves Satanist and we are a group that really values knowledge. Uh, we need to know uh, where it came from and and the influential figures within that community. Uh, we should also point out again that there is uh, a, a broad range of opinions about a character like LeVay. There are many Satanists who continue to revere him in ways that are very strict and in my opinion, often annoying, but that is just my opinion. There are also people like, uh, we just recorded an episode with Lilith Starr, who was a Satanist who previously was Levain, and then she quit that scene because she didn't want to hang out with those people anymore, but she still extracts a lot of value out of many of Levain's writings. For example, she says that it helped her get sober when she had a very serious drug habit earlier. She found it empowering in a way that traditional uh, religion and practices like AA just were not for her, and so she continues to hang on to a lot of that, even though it is not necessarily part of the satanic practice that she does now. And then you've got people like us who are pretty far divorced from LeVay. Uh, Simone mentioned a second ago that idea, that idea of um, ruthless authoritarianism, which is really sort of at the heart of LeVay's philosophy, especially more towards the end of his life. You look at the books that he wrote before he died, even more so the satanic Bible, but is there in the satanic Bible, which, you know, is in many parts based on a book that was literally called Might is Right. And so if you look at that perspective on Satan, again, this is what I'm talking about when I say there's so many different points of views. That is is totally unlike Satan as I think of him. I think of Satan as, for example, there's a writer named Jules Michelet who wrote a book called, uh, it's often published in English as Satanism and Witchcraft, where he wrote about this idea of mm -hmm. Satan as the god of the poor. He called he called Satan the god of serfs, that's S-E-R-F-S, -S, the god of the peasants, uh, as opposed to the god of church and state, which of course was Jesus and God. He interpreted Satan as sort of almost a populist figure to whom ordinary people could turn for empowerment against these institutions that exploited them. Or you look at a book like Laba, which is this very seamy uh, potboiler pulp thriller that was published at the end of the 19th century and was maybe unfortunately influential in people's, inspiring people's ideas about Satanism as an evil secret society. But it is kind of a fascinating book. And at the end of that, you get this very famous scene where this Satanist priest who's giving this blasphemous sermon and he talks about how 
uh, Jesus is the vassal of big banks and big government, uh, and how only Satan is the one who helps the who helps the the poor and the downtrodden. And I love this line so much that I've actually brought it up in uh, Satanic Rituals twice in the last month, where he says, you know, only you can protect people from the God from from the children of God who are the rich. And so I look at Satan as a very compassionate figure. Uh, and some somebody who, uh, who, who from his own experience, from the, somebody who has tried and failed and suffered and knows adversity and is very fallible and vulnerable and humane, and is really sort of the inverse of this idea of the sort of ruthless exploitation of other people that some Satanists seem to identify with. So uh, uh, it, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot to try to. It's a lot to try to get your brain around. Uh, but you know that that's how people are. People are complex, and we have complex points of view. I think it's interesting you bring up Michelet. It sort of brings us toward you know the direction I want to take the conversation, and because so much of what Michelet was doing was reframing witchcraft, you know, as a sort of union with Satan, as a French Republican activity. You know, he was writing it in this vein of it being uh, fundamentally democratic, uh, as opposed to the way it had been viewed in the past. Um, so let's, you know, use that maybe as a, maybe that's my way of making a transition to talk about views of Satan today. Uh, certainly, I mean, the both of you go around to some extent, right? You hold public rituals and things and, and you, you wear the label. Um, it, it's been a fraught topic in, in America, the concept of Satan and where Satan sits. Uh, I think LaVey is a fascinating figure in this regard because he dodged so much of the what came to be called the satanic panic, but Michael Aquino was very much caught up in it. Um, so if we go back to the 70s, being a Satanist or being identified with Satan, we, we think about teenagers in the woods and, and you know, we think about the, uh, the panic that followed in the 80s. Satan was very much a signifier for child abuse to begin, uh, but perhaps all sorts of uh, weird uh, desecration of corpses and graves and whatever teenagers are up to in their Black Sabbath t-shirts. Uh, what is your take on on the evolution of America and Satan? Well, one thing that I'd like to point out is um, Satan, I, I'm sure comes as no surprise, is used as a scapegoat for a lot. And um, it's interesting because it seems like Satan is often used to position real world problems and to make them, you know, to sort of either distract from their actual causes or to make them seem bigger and make it feel more like you're in some sort of cosmic battle. So when we think about the satanic panic uh, of that time, you know, we think about um, societal concerns about, you know, the the dissolution of the nuclear family, you know, increasing in divorce or uh, women entering the workplace and not being stay at home moms. Uh, concerns about stranger danger, about your children getting kidnapped. And, you know, to to some degree that, you know, these are our concerns. Of course, every parent worries about, you know, the safety of their children. Um, but instead of focusing on the the actual causes of these problems in terms of like, you know, institutionalized racism, sexism, um, capitalism, um, and uh for the example of children, people, you know, most children are harmed by people who are in their family or who they know. And so uh, that's almost too scary to think about, I think, for some people. And so if you reframe it as, oh, these Satanists are hiding in caves and wearing robes and they're going to come out and snatch your children. Well, that's for some reason easier for some people to accept. 
And then it just kind of, you know, spins wildly out of control. And you get Geraldo having his specials, warning parents about the dangers of, I don't know, pentagrams or whatever. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. Geraldo was big on that scene. Now, Simone, <laughs> do you mind if I ask you a question? Go for it. So given that there is, and since the 60s and just different eras of the satanic panic, there's this kind of negative stigma when you look at, uh, you know, incidents like with the West Memphis Three in the early 90s. How do you kind of, you know, convince people that, as you said, you know, Satanists are not living in caves? How do you break that mindset or how do you kind of push past that in a way? Well, well, I can't go back in time and, you know, use use a podcast to exonerate the the West Memphis Three or anything. Um, all I can do is, you know, live my life um, kind of as an example. And I just think about when I told my parents that I was, you know, interested in Satanism and was starting to attend Satanic Bay Area events. And I was just like, look, you know, you know, I'm not cuckoo bananas. You know, I'm an educated person. You trust that I make good decisions. Um, so just trust that I'm doing this for a reason. Just trust that this has something that I find valuable. And so um, just by being a relatively, quote unquote, normal person, if I'm just, you know, meeting someone at a, you know, at a bar or a cocktail party or something, and we're talking about our values, and I bust out with, oh, I'm a Satanist, it does catch some people off guard. Because even though I wear all black, I do look very normal. Uh, again, quote, quotes around normal, because we know that that's not really a thing. Uh, unexpected. Loose, Everything's relative, huh? right? <laughs> uh, it's a very loose term. Normal. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, just to kind of calmly explain why I, uh, a otherwise unremarkable, you know, uh, white cis heterosexual woman would be choosing something that seems extreme but then to me it's not extreme and all I just need to do is you know very calmly and in friendly manner talk about why I've made the decisions and why I believe the things that I believe and honestly most of the people I talk to even if they don't ultimately agree with me they just kind of go oh okay okay and that's really all that I need you know, uh, please don't throw holy water on me or try and set me on fire. That would be great. Um, but I also don't need you to like fully hop on board with me either. I often make the argument that I say that I think reasonable people, if you sit them down and you explain to them what satanic values are from your perspective and why we employ words and images and aesthetics as we do, at the end of the conversation, even if they don't necessarily like us or what we're doing, they will at least have a degree of understanding that they know it is not necessarily cause for alarm. Unreasonable people, on the other hand, will probably never be convinced of that, no matter what we say to them. But why are we including unreasonable people in the conversation? They're very unreasonable. Um, it does maybe <laughs> trace back, maybe uh, the question is, why then do the unreasonable people believe the specific things they do if it's not rooted in something like, you know, empirical evidence or talking to people like us? And this idea of 
an evil group of people working in secrets to do evil, antisocial, violent things is actually even older than the word Satan. If you read, there is a great book called Children of Lucifer by Ruben von Luc, which is a very comprehensive uh, history of Satanism, both its actual practice and the myth of Satanism. And this is a great book, but it is a it is a labor to get through. It is, it is, it is huge. You could stun an ox with this thing. I had to read it in three different, <laughs> I had to try to finish it three different times um, last year, but I'm glad that I did. But he writes that some of the earliest Zoroastrians, a religion that, you know, predates Christianity and what we think of as Judaism today by many thousands of years, they believed that there were evil groups of sorcerers who would meet at night in the desert to worship evil spirits and to do and to, and to do wrong-minded things. And Cheryl Mulhern, it's a cultural anthropologist, she referred to that as the myth of the blood cult conspiracy. It's made kind of the oldest conspiracy theory known to mankind. And, um, it's not necessarily surprising that we see it manifest in the context of Satan and the Satan myth. Another book we reference on the show a lot, uh, Princeton professor Elaine Pagels wrote the origin of Satan back in the nineties. And she wrote about, this is her perspective. Uh, I am not a theologian or uh, well-versed in the histories of religions outside of the narrow context we talk about on our podcast. But her perspective is she writes about that the idea of the devil of Satan, you know, Satan is a character who appears in Hebrew scriptures like Job and Zechariah, but that is a much different character than the devil. That is seemingly a specific angel with a specific unpleasant job, but nevertheless, somebody who is subordinate to God and doing God's work. The devil, as we think of him today, is somebody who emerged maybe in the second temple period of, of Judaism around uh, 400 BCE to around 70 CE. And this is a time when apocalypticism became popular, became a popular movement, this idea of dividing the world into forces of good and evil, and this idea that they're always at war, and that there will be a final reckoning, and that it's coming soon when God will, you know, smite the evil forever. That was, you know, and that is when Satan sort of emerges as this idea of the primary force of evil in the world and this antagonistic power and somebody who represents really all of these uh, not just spiritual forces aligned against us but also the worldly ones also for example rome in the context of people living in judea and she singled out specifically she said but more importantly satan also represents sort of the uh the outgroup it's a way of creating outgroups it's a way of associating people whom you do not like with uh, spiritual evil, even within your own community. She said that there were these, she wrote these sort of radical factionalists uh, who, who said, you know, not all of us Jews are living uh, are living according to God. Some of us have been compromised by this power that they called Satan. And so it was an idea of, of Satan was a tool that people used to create outsiders and to ostracize the people whom they felt were maybe not zealous enough or maybe not holy enough or not living in the right way or just were not close enough to what they considered to be orthodox religious practice. And so it has continued to this day, you know, that Satan is still a word and a concept and an image that people use to single out those with whom they do not want to associate for particular stigma. And so, uh, of course, you know, those stories flare up as they did in the 80s and the 90s, as they're doing again now in the online conspiracy sphere. That is what the word Satan is for, for those people, at least for us, is for something very different. 
So in your case, I mean, for both of you, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's almost like adopting Satanism or adopting Satan as a kind of mascot is a way of marginalizing yourself, of pushing yourself to the margins intentionally. Yes, but a lot of us were already there. Um, if we follow the, you know, the televangelist style uh, American Christianity that we have uh, now, you know, someone who is gay is of the devil. Someone who is trans is in league with Satan. Someone who has had an abortion is already a Satanist. And so, you know, as Daniel said before, there's no reasoning with some of these people. To these people, you're going to be evil and outside of the mainstream no matter what. And so it is an embracing of that and of using it to empower yourself. You can say, you know, I don't I don't actually believe in a red man with horns and a pitchfork who's living in, you know, a giant fireplace and is going to poke me after I die. Uh, but some people really do believe that. So it doesn't scare me. Mm. I'm embracing it. And now I've really got the attention of the people who already were against me, already didn't like me, and I have power again. So, you know, it might seem counterintuitive, but, you know, it is empowering for a lot of people. Yeah, by far the most common story we hear from other Satanists is of people who were alienated by and sort of jilted out of more traditional religions because they felt like they had been made outsiders within that practice for any number of reasons. Obviously, one of the most common ones is because they were queer in some way. I, I apologize. I know some people don't necessarily like that word since it is a reclaimed slur, but it's very common in the circles that we hang out in. And so it's kind of hard not to use it. Um, but, you know, it, it could be because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. That's extremely common, but it could be for a lot of other things, too. It could just be something as simple as wanting control over your own body as an example as Simone has brought up with before it could be because they simply are you know too academic minded they ask too many of the wrong kinds of questions can't believe the right kinds of things could be something simple like you know you play Dungeons and Dragons or you listen to heavy metal music uh, those things seem relatively harmless now but I've talked to people who grew, had very traumatic experiences in their past because they were singled out by those things by the other people in their community and so rather than making, making yourself an outsider by identifying as Satan more commonly it's people who already feel they've been made outsiders and who through satanism are trying to reclaim some of the power that they have lost through that experience so let's get into the uh daniel you mentioned the content the 21st century uh satanic panic I, i call it the revival of the satanic panic uh you know the satanic panic in itself is many thousands of years old but it has these flare-ups and you know from to from the 80s to 20 2020 this is a pretty short duration for us to have a, a re-flare-up but the people that we're accusing of being in league with satan are not you all you, you guys are not on on the, the chopping block in fact we're looking at hollywood celebrities we're looking at politicians republicans in name only they are going Why after are these folks being identified with they you? are going after my tom hanks and i can't take it i know i can't take it oh Simone, I'm with you. I did 20 minutes on this on my show. How upset I was that Tom Hanks should 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 be involved in this at all. He's the one thing in America that we have going and, for and us. And Tom, Tom Hanks, Hanks is a is local a boy. Commodity. <laughs> Tom, Tom Hanks is from Oakland, uh, born in the city I live in now, and my family has followed his career for our entire lives. My dad went to high school with him. So when you come for Tom Hanks, no when you come for Tom Hanks, I will be there. With the, I don't know, beat you with the giant piano from Big. I don't know. I gotta, I, I, 
not to get into not to get on a tangent, but I got to tell this story, even though this is not my anecdote. This is a secondhand anecdote. Years ago, I was interviewing Brian Copeland, who's a radio host down here, and he's got a, a one man show uh, that he's been doing for over a decade at this point. That is, they're sort of ubiquitous in SF theater, in the SF theater scene. And he talked about when he was young, he met Tom Hanks. Uh, he was interviewed. He was uh, uh, studying journalism in college and he had the opportunity to interview Hanks, who at that point was not as famous as he is now, but was, you know, breaking out. And he talked about how uh, Hanks was really was just the nicest guy he'd ever met, that they talked way over their time, that Hanks took him out and bought him pizza, that he taught him how to juggle. And I'm like, wait, he taught you how to juggle? He's like, yeah, during the conversation, I just mentioned that I was wanted to learn how to juggle three balls. And he's like, oh, I know how to do it. And it's actually like you can learn the trick here. I'll show you and the whole thing. And, and you know, he wrapped it up and he did that assignment and he published the story in whatever college publication he did. And then life went on. And then he talks about how decades later, he's over at the Berkeley rep seeing a show and he stops in the he goes to the men's room and who's peeing right next to him why it's tom hanks what do you know and as they're washing their hands he turns to him and he says hey i don't want to bother you and you probably like you don't remember this but when i was a kid i interviewed you and he looks at him and goes yeah i remember you i taught you how to juggle how have you been you know and he's just like, like like they were the oldest friends in the world so apparently it really is true apparently he is just the nicest most personable guy in hollywood uh the stories are true you heard it here folks Boy, the art love affair with Tom Hanks just continues. Thank you for <laughs> for continuing that that storyline on this show. Um, so, but liberalism. Let's let's get into liberalism here. I mean, the reason Tom Hanks is on the chopping block, Steven Spielberg, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, these folks are all Satanists because they are part of a liberal elite. We've included Republicans, uh, but Republicans in name only are are included in this Satanic elite. Um, because they oppose specifically Donald Trump's politics. Uh, but, but that's essentially what the Q image of a Satanist is, elite liberal. But what is the relationship between liberalism and Satanism? And here I thought Daniel would jump right in. Um, <laughs> well, um, you know, I think looking at it from the very uh, narrow perspective of just the the last um, uh, couple of years, a couple presidential uh, administrations, we see uh, someone like Donald Trump, who is a certain kind of person's idea of what a rich person should be. Golden toilets, being mean to people and getting away with it. Not my personal idea of a, a good rich person, but anyway. Um, speaking to people who have felt um, left out of the culture. And there was talk before about something, you know, economic anxiety, you know, that these people were worried about, you know, being left behind economically. But as we look into it further, we see that that's not actually the case. A lot of these people are perfectly well off with their, you know, tricked out Ford F-150s and their speedboats and their nice houses in suburbia. And, uh, but they're feeling left out culturally because they're losing their perceived power by other groups coming and, you know, taking claim of of their own powers again kind of looking at it as a zero-sum game when there's only so much to go around so naturally if the gays are coming or if the immigrants are coming they're going to be taking something away from me so these people who are feeling disempowered which is ironic because they still have the most capital the most power politically and culturally um they get spoken to by someone like donald trump who makes them feel special who makes them feel 
like it's an us versus them. And the us versus them turns into, you know, us versus the elite. And elite can mean different things. It can mean the rich. It can mean the educated. It can mean the people in power. It could just mean someone you don't like. It could just mean someone who thinks they're better than you. And how dare they think that they're better than me? And really kind of goes to that gut emotional reaction. So there's not any, I mean, from from what I can understand, there's not any intellectual definition of the elite, of the liberal. It's just anyone who kind of makes you feel bad about yourself and you don't like them. So. Well, I mean, on one hand, there is some degree of, I'm going to be very careful how I phrase this. There is seemingly a degree of substance and overlap between the conspiracist idea of a satanic conspiracy and some actual satanic values and practices. For example, there's the issue of abortion, which is far and away the Rosetta Stone of modern American politics. Uh, People who are most likely to subscribe to views like QAnon are most likely to be aggressively anti-choice, and they perceive abortion as a satanic practice simply because it is something to them that is the most abominable. And indeed, coincidentally, uh, that freedom over your body and your medical choices is extremely important to many actual Satanists today, although not to everybody. Anton LaVey, for example, hated abortion. A lot of people don't realize that about him. But nevertheless, I would say that is uh, as close to a common denominator between a lot of different Satanists, a lot of different Satanic practices as you can get. Now, that is, of course, just a coincidence, but nevertheless, it can fuel the fire. It can You can definitely uh, feed into their perception there. Um, I'm reminded of there is a folklorist, Bill Ellis, whom I interviewed last year for, an inter- for a story about this very topic, and he told me, he said, belief in Satan is a very old conspiracy theory. And I have no idea what Bill Ellis's religious practice, religious opinions are, but that right there was, uh, was kind of an eye-opening comment that he made. If you look at um, this book called The Satanism Scare that was published, I think, in 91 or 92, as the Satanic Panic was still going on, although at that point it was winding down. I don't know if that was apparent yet. And the editors of that book, they singled out a couple of factors that they said had driven that particular... Uh, anti-satanic conspiracy thing. They brought up things like the rise of evangelical religions, especially uh, Pentecostal and charismatic religions, as they call them. They brought up the anti-cult movement of the 60s and 70s, this fear of new religions subverting people, especially through almost like magical mind control ideas that people, the, the cult leaders exercised over their followers. They did bring up the example of actual religious Satanists like the Church of Satan. They said that was a minor factor, but it was an actual one. It provided maybe a model for people to project their fear years on to and they also bring up things like uh like um you know when when time when uh i don't want to use the term um economic anxiety because i feel that's almost a dog whistle at this point uh but when times are bad for whatever reason that does increase people's fears and they do become more susceptible to conspiracy thinking that is a real phenomena and so it's not that hard to look at america today or the world today and try to single out what are the factors that maybe are putting pressure on us socially that might provoke some people to try to buy into these ideas. And oftentimes it's a question of just extremes. It's somebody who 30 years ago was, uh, was, was, was uh, quite conservative, but not necessarily, had not necessarily 
tilted as far into this sort of uh, church of paranoia as maybe they are today. It's really maybe just a question of degree. Maybe it's just a question of how provoked did they feel then versus now. And maybe those two positions are as scary as it is to think really just a lighter and a harder manifestation of the same outlook that it's really just, you know, um, um, you, you turn up, you, you turn the dials up on the world, you turn the volume up on the world. And, uh, this is what, you, this, this, this is what that turns into. Um, that, that's, 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 uh, uh, like I said, I, I don't necessarily feel qualified to say that conclusively, but, uh, it doesn't not fit the data. So there's that. <laughs> Yeah, and I think going back through history, Daniel, there's a point to be made there. As the, as we reach points of high tension culturally, I, I think that's when we see images of Satan. Simone, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to piggyback of what uh, Daniel said, and also something he said earlier, uh, thinking about you know these real world problems or these perceived real world problems, and um, maybe a loss of identity. And to throw oneself into the idea that you're not just against someone politically. You're not just against abortion. It is now a cosmic battle of good and evil, and you are on the side of good. And people start to wrap up their personalities in this idea, which does make it very difficult to try and reason with or talk to someone who's really kind of uh, enveloped themselves in in this kind of thinking, where... Um, you know, they've they've bought into this idea that they are warriors on the side of good. And by questioning that, they're going to dig in, you know, if someone questions that they will dig in their heels, because this is who they are. This is now their identity. They are a Trump supporter. They are a Christian. They are, you know, a QAnon follower. And it just lends, you know, more meaning to some people's lives. And that's a lot of what conspiracy theory uh, is about, is offering the idea that, you know, there is someone in charge, there is an organized group who's running things, and maybe you don't like them, but at least someone is running it. It's not, you know, a totally chaotic, meaningless, you know, universe where there's no God or whatever. And it offers them secret knowledge. They are now special. They may have to go to their, you know, office job and, and type numbers into a computer, but they know something that most people don't. And that makes them special and important. And that's really the thing that any person, you know, no matter what your belief set is, uh, wants. You want to feel special and important. And so, you know, that's why some people turn to certain religions. That's why some people turn to conspiracy theory. We just did an episode with uh, Robert Fuller, who was a professor of religions and Something that he has said in the past, he singled it out. He said specifically it is about demographics. He said that these people in America, they look at things like immigration rates. They look at things like trends in religion, and they perceive that their cultural dominance is going to slip away from them in ways that they simply cannot counter. Uh, he used the term that I don't think we would employ today because it doesn't sound very PC, but they used to just talk about, quote, the browning of America. You can probably figure out what uh, what that refers to. And he says that, that even though these people really have almost all of the political power in America now, they perceive that that is temporary. And indeed, there are some signs that they there are some uh, cultural signs they find very worrying. And so um, I mentioned Elaine Pagels earlier. She wrote another book called Revelations, and she's writing about John Apotmos, the man who probably wrote the book of Revelation, and talk about him. He was this uh, he was this um, 
a war refugee, probably. He was probably somebody who had fought in the Judean uh, revolt against Rome and lost and saw his home destroyed, the city destroyed, the temple destroyed, and was probably living in exile somewhere. And so for people like that, uh, and there were, you know, there were a lot of apocalyptic texts during those days, a lot of revelation texts floating around. This is just the one that, for whatever reason, happened to be the most popular influential, if you want to know why, read Pagel's book about that. But she talked about how a person in that position, when he traveled, what was he traveling through? Well, he was traveling through what was the Roman Empire. Everywhere he was seeing Rome, he was seeing soldiers, he was seeing images of the emperor, he was seeing their temples with their gods, and he's seeing these people who had done these these you know terrible things to his homeland, and like they are triumphant, they rule the world as far as he sees. He says, you know, how 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 what is what is wrong? You know, uh, we know that we know that God loves us and wants what is best for us. How can this be what is best for us? And so out of that outlook comes this idea of, you know, the final reckoning, the idea that it's only bad right now for a little while soon, everything will, everything will change. And that's the QAnon, uh, you know, um, message that's the QAnon preaching it's bad right now but soon everything will change it'll be in august it'll be towards the end of the year uh, it'll be in 2022 or 2024 it's happening right now it's all around us don't you see the signs it's you know you have to be blind not to realize everything is just about to change it's the reckoning that they always feel is just about to come and that is really provides that relief from the fear and uh, and the worry about the state of the world. And even when, and this is why, when the prophecies don't come true, people still buy in harder because, you know, that only increases that fear that they have. And so they need the conspiracy even more than ever. And they need to always be seeing signs that it's coming true at all times, because that is what gives them that feeling that gives them that relief. That is what they're seeking to begin with. Here, the millenarian uh, focus is very interesting, Daniel, and I think it, it has a lot to do with the overlap between the Christian right and QAnon, as we understand it. And maybe it's almost a threat to the Christian right that QAnon has in many ways co-opted the, the millennium that fundamentalist Christians have been anticipating for all this time. And now they've said, well, the millennium will be brought about by Donald Trump. Well, whoa, <laughs> I don't know if the Bible says that. This has been a source of a lot of pain, uh, I think, in Christianity. Can you guys tell me, do you think there's room or place for common ground between the Christian right and the Satanists? Oof. Um, I don't know. On its face, it's difficult. But, you know, Satanism is not a religion that proselytizes or recruits, uh, no matter what anyone else says. All that we're looking for is the equal rights guaranteed to us um, in this country, but also in whatever country uh, Satanists reside in. We just need that kind of acceptance um, that kind of live and let live, you know, let us practice what we want to, and you can mind your own business. Um, I would imagine that some folks would appreciate uh, uh, that for, for themselves as well. But, you know, we want to be able to practice our religion um, unharassed, uh, not not being put in any danger or harm. Um, we want to be able to um, be our true selves you know, we want to love who we love. We want to be who we are. Um, we want to do with what our own bodies that we want to do. And when you describe it like that, you would think that that's something that would be appealing to a broad swath of, of people. And part of me still hopes that it is. Um, however, we do see uh, folks on the right, you know, folks, you know, the Christians, evangelicals, 
who are very, very, very concerned about what goes on inside your pants or what goes on inside your mind and want to have you do what they think is right. And, you know, that's that's a, a problem with other religions as well. Um, so because of that, that's why I kind of hesitate that I'm not sure that we could possibly get there. Um, if we just leave it as, you know, um, do no harm to other people and, and live your life the way you want it you know, to be lived, if we can all get on that same page, then then maybe, but mm, I'm not holding my breath on that one. <laughs> so maybe it's the fundamentalism itself that causes the disconnect with Satanism, that we could imagine a Christian perhaps, but maybe perhaps not a far-right Christian. I mean, perhaps we could. Something Simone just said a second ago about um, people who want to, per necessity, normalize and institutionalize their religious beliefs, something that another line that I bring up when we do satanic rituals a lot because it blew my mind when I first realized when I first learned it is that the word heresy, the root of that comes from a Greek word that means choice. That's what heresy means. It's choosing for yourself, whereas the opposite of heresy is orthodoxy, which comes from a root word that means this one's a little bit, this etymology is a little bit squishier, but essentially it means straight. It essentially, it means to conform to a narrow, rigid, one way perspective. And so I am intensely allergic to orthodoxy. And so those religions that presume the necessity of orthodoxy, it is very, very hard to find common ground with them because why would it not be? Is there an element to Satanism that's offering a solution to some of the problems we've been talking about today in the conspiracy, in the world of conspiracy, conspiracy becoming religion, you know, these sorts of ideas? Uh, be- before we get to that, Simone was about to say something in response to the previous oh, question, she? and I cut her off. Oh, well, <laughs> yes. I've already... Shoot. Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, basically, basically, the point is, is that I think a lot of Satanists um, don't care about what other people do. <laughs> they don't care uh, what God you believe in, in your mind and in your heart. They don't care what book you read before you go to bed. They do care if it affects other people. They do care if you are uh, harming a child. You, They do care if they're, you know, sending a child off to gay conversion therapy. They do care if they're bombing abortion clinics. But most of us just don't care. I don't care what you do at home. I care about what I do at home. And uh, so that's that's a mindset that I, I think is, is helpful. Um, and to kind of go back to the question about what is Satanism doing that could potentially help is, you know, um, I'm not a member of the Satanic Temple, but I do view um, some of their works as uh, being a positive in that when you fight for the rights of someone who on the surface is so opposite of the mainstream and you successfully make the argument that this person is guaranteed the same rights as everyone else, they help to open the door wider for other marginalized groups who may not be at first blush so you know, terrifying. <laughs> so, so if we can make, you know, people realize that Satanists are just other human beings um, who have the same rights and the same, you know, personal desires, they want love, they want shelter, they need food, they need water and air. Once we've made that point, 
then I think the other people, the other groups that are seen as as frightening, as we've already said, you know, the LGBTQ plus community, um, you know, immigrants, people of other faiths that are not as um, populous in this country, you know, everything from from Wicca to, to Islam. If the Satanists can prove that we're human beings, uh, it's hopefully not a huge leap to go to these other uh, groups and go, oh, you know what? Live how you want to live. So I'm not sure that we've made a lot of headway on that front, but it continues to be my hope that that we can set a kind of example um, about tolerance and acceptance. So there's a sense there, Simone, that you're intentionally occupying the, the furthest limits and, and trying to do the work from the radical edge of religion or culture. Yeah. I mean, from where I'm sitting, it doesn't feel like the radical edge because it's my everyday life, but I do recognize that it seems that way. And, you know, I look at my life and the incredible privilege that I come from as a college-educated, middle-class, white-collar, heterosexual you know, cisgendered woman, I am swimming in it. And so it doesn't bother me to take the heat for a little bit. Like I can take it. Um, It's my friends and my family members who are, you know, immigrants who are minorities, who are, you know, queer, who've already gone through so much that, you know, whatever I can do to help make the world a better place for them is, is my goal. And it makes a, the world a better place for myself as well and for everyone else. Boy, uh, until Simone brought it up, I, re- I realized, like, wow, we didn't even talk about the Satanizing of immigrants. Fuck, that's a nightmare. That's a whole different. Oh, man. Um, to answer the question about how or are we helping, I would like to think, I would like to think that the way we can help with things like black mass appeal and satanic Bay area is just to provide an example that maybe gives comfort to people who are living in some parts of the country, some parts of the world in some domestic situations, just in some circumstances in their lives where they don't feel safe being themselves or expressing themselves where they don't feel like they can really belong, where they feel pressured to conform to a practice or a tradition or to politics or to an outlook or just to an environment that is hostile or toxic to them. Um, Maybe where, where maybe they feel abused or they fear abuse and people who live like that, especially young people or people who have lived that way from a young age can feel very, very hopeless. And so I hope that some of the examples we provide uh, with the guests on our show and the topics on our show and just having a show like we do or doing public events like we do with Satanic Bay Area can show people that, you know what, there is more to the world than that. There are people who are like you and there are people who will like you. And even if it's not us, at the very least, we show that that diversity of perspective and practice does exist outside of that environment that you maybe feel trapped in and maybe are trapped in. There are other people who will create, who, who would be willing to create better things for you if hopefully one day you can get out there and meet them and help create that life for yourself but in the meantime you do not have to subscribe to the authority of that orthodoxy that orthodoxy no matter what it tells you is not all there is to life it is not all there is to the world there is another way there are many other ways and hopefully people who are stuck in that situation can take examples like ours and many many others and including many people who work a lot harder than us and take a lot more risks than us and have bigger platforms than us 
but nevertheless, maybe we can contribute a little bit to the discourse that helps to let those people know that they are not as alone as maybe sometimes they can feel. Yeah. And, and I really dislike how uh, the right has monopolized or, or claimed certain words, you know, they're the ones who have family values. Well, you know what? I have a family too. They're the ones who are moral. Well, I have morals as well. They don't come from the same place as you, but I have them. Um, the idea of religion, just full stop. When we say religion in this country, we almost by default mean Christianity. And the idea of um, alternative religions, especially atheistic religions, seems so foreign. And I hope that through our work, we can reassure people that they can have those things too. Even if they're not Christian, even if they're not straight, even if they're not whatever, um, we have formed a religious community that is very supportive of, of each other. And, you know, someone who is an atheist, I always thought, oh, religion is silly. You know, why would you bother going to church? You know, you all read the same book and sing the same songs and it's terribly boring and also kind of cringeworthy. But after actually connecting with people who believe the same things I do and who made me feel accepted and welcome and safe, I started realizing the benefits of religion and the benefits of a community. And, you know, it has changed my life. And I would like to think that once we show other people that you can have those things and you can benefit, you can take the good things while casting aside the things that don't work for you, I really think that that can be, you know, a net positive for our society. You can hear these opinions and more on Black Mass Appeal, which I believe if you scroll to the bottom of our page on iTunes is one of those shows that is considered like ours. <laughs> I think that's perfectly fine. And, and seems uh, if you look at Black Mass Appeal, you guys are, are right there oh, really? with us. Yeah. How about that? They knew, well, they knew before we even started talking to each other. <laughs> Uh, any closing thoughts for uh, for my audience of confessors out there? Uh, yes, as long as we're on the topic of Black Mass Appeal, we also want to give a shout out to our other co-host, Tabitha. If you tune into BMA, you will hear from her as well. She couldn't be here because of a scheduling conflict, but we do want to acknowledge uh, everything that she contributes to the show and that, uh, you know, when, when uh, viewers tune in, it's not just uh, listeners tune in. It's not just us that they're getting. They're getting her, too. One of the things I really appreciate about uh, this interview today was just the depth of questions and the originality of, of you know, the, the, the lines of conversation, because as I'm sure you guys experience, we end up answering the same questions over and over and over again, and just feeling like we're barely, barely scratching the surface. So I, I really appreciate the, the thoughtfulness of this interview. <laughs> <laughs> So check them out, friends. Uh, I do encourage you to. Uh, we're going to be doing a, a short series of uh, podcasts that we like and having conversations with folks on podcasts that we enjoy. And uh, this is the first. Daniel and Simone, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. And we will catch you all next time, confessors, here on Occult Confessions.